Well, good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles again to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 18, and then uh, that's page 925 if you're using our Bibles here. I'm convinced that everyone in the room who's a parent would probably do just about anything to help or bless your own children. Once that little newborn baby cries in your arms, it's like your world changes and suddenly all your priorities revolve around this little life forever. If somebody wants to harm or uh, even criticize your child, you ever notice how your defense is just like, ah. And if somebody compliments or encourages your child, they are suddenly one of your favorite people in the universe because we are so committed to our kids. That's how Jesus Christ feels about you because you're his child. If you're a believer in Christ, you are a child of God and part of his family. To think that the creator of the universe came down to this tiny planet to be the savior of a family that he would have relationship with forever. We are that small, proportionately group of people with whom we have an eternal relationship. And we want to think about that privilege today We mean everything to Christ. He is so committed to us as a church. It's not surprising to find that he is rewarding us if we are committed to the same people he is. You follow that? We're going to be thinking about the privilege of the church, that we are privileged because Jesus is committed to us, and we are rewarded if we are committed to the same people. Nothing endears us to Christ like loving the people he loves. Paul starts this section in verse 18 um, with a familiar rebuke, if you've been with us in our study, a familiar rebuke of false wisdom or worldly wisdom. And he basically is talking about anybody who would distract the church from the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's almost like he's saying, don't mess with my family. Don't confuse them. By, by distracting them to look at other things other than the centrality of the gospel of Jesus. Verse 18, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. It's like Paul is confronting some of the know-it-alls that he's been talking about in the first couple chapters who were distracting the church from the gospel. And he's warning them, such a person, if whether they are from like meeting with the church or somebody kind of connected to the church that's doing this, whoever they are, they better wake up to true wisdom because the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. It's completely flipped. So in other words, what the world thinks is important is not. And what God says is important is. So what's important and what is truly wise? Thinking back to chapter 1, verse 21. The so-called foolishness of preaching is able to save those who believe. Preaching the message of the cross, that's what it's about. 
is able to eternally save and create a family for Christ forever. It's able to save those who believe. Everybody's going everybody's to live forever somewhere. And those who have believed in Christ will live forever with Christ as his family. So he says, you're a fool to scoff at that message. You're a fool to even minimize the importance of Christ crucified for you. And then he quotes actually in the end of verse 19, beginning of verse 22, Old Testament passages to say how God is going to turn the tables on what the world thinks is so important. He catches the wise in their craftiness. That's from Job 5. And again, this is Psalm 94, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So the people who are so smart in this world, actually they're believing in something futile or worthless. It's completely flipped. And so someday God is going to expose how foolish the world's religions are if they don't center on the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the saddest things about maybe driving around or circling the globe and seeing so many churches with crosses, it's a sad thing that so many do not focus on the message of that cross. That um, they're not preaching the gospel that Jesus alone can save us by faith in him. And so what you tend to find is a lot of churches that are talking about, let's be good people. Let's solve human problems. But here's the thing. Human problems are caused by sin. But so often they don't want to talk about sin or the only solution to sin, which is Jesus Christ. So we really have no solution to human problems apart from the gospel of Christ. And that's why it really is that wisdom, this like, let's all be wonderful people and fix the world, is actually foolishness. It's a wasted show of religion. It's empty. It's worthless. There's no power to save. And evidently, that's what some of the people were doing in Corinth or people who were trying to influence the church, the people in Corinth. So middle of, then verse 21 So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Now, just admit, as you first read through that, you're kind of going, what is he talking about, right? There's a familiar thing, if you've been with us in the, in the study of the first couple of chapters, you will notice he brings up yet again this thing about which is the most important leader that they were like seeing people as rivalries. These are all spiritual leaders, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, another name for Peter. So he says, I'm going to bring this up one more time, all things are yours. And then later on he says in, chapter, in verse 22 again, all things are yours yours. So his point is that somehow you, the church, are really blessed, really privileged. And we'll see two ways in which he says all things are yours. The first way in which he says all things are yours is that the leaders that you're kind of comparing and trying to choose your favorites, he says, no, all those, these leaders are yours. Stop the nonsense of comparing us like the world compares and says, well, you know, 
How are they on the draft chart? Let's rank them. That's kind of what they were doing. Everybody ranks everybody. And so in the political world, the, the business world, the sports world, for that matter, the religious world, you've got, you got the king and emperors and presidents and generals, and you've got bishops and popes, and you have CEOs and general managers and franchise players, and you, you always, he says, you always see things this way. He says, don't look at leaders in the church that way. All things are yours. First of all, the Paul, Apollos, Peter, they all belong to the church. Don't compare them. Don't click your favorites. These, these leaders, spiritual leaders in the church, belong to the church. You realize that's an entirely opposite way of viewing leadership. Let me, I, I was trying to think this through, and I, it helps me sometimes to diagram. Here's how the world views leadership. It's a top-down view. You have a leader, and the leader has followers, right? Get the Got the guy or the woman, and, and you have all the, the followers. And this is true whether you're an actual leader, like in politics or business, or if you're a fake leader. There's a name now for fake leaders. They're called influencers because they don't actually lead anything. They just lead their own glory parade or something. But what you want is followers in the world's top-down view. That's not how God sees it. And you can see it right from these couple of verses. God's view is bottom-up, which is a, compared to the arrogant view, this is the humble view that Christ modeled. He says, he'll say chapter 4, verse 1, we're servants. So spiritual leaders belong to the church. Not the followers belong to the leaders, but the spiritual leaders belong to the church. And if you go follow through into verse 23, and the church belongs to Christ, and Christ is there for God's glory. So, you have to completely retrain your mind to understand leadership. Paul's saying Jesus loves his church, and so he gave the church its leaders to serve, support the church. Is exactly what he said later on in Ephesians 4. So Christ himself gave, what did he give? Leaders to the church. Apostles like Paul, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up and become mature. So from the bottom up, God has gifted the church with leaders to enable, support, equip everyone to do what they should because we all belong to Christ and we all exist for God's glory. And it actually is a beautiful picture of how God grows, kind of like from the roots on up. That's what he's about. So Pastor Nate and myself and elders and and uh, men and women who lead different things in church are gifts to the church, and they're gifts not to do all the ministry, but rather to equip the church to do all that the God has designed for the church to do. So if you leave a, a worship service or a sermon or adult Bible fellowship or Bible study or any other group of believers gathering to glorify Christ, if you leave knowing more, a little more about God, knowing you can trust him more, being a little more encouraged to serve, then the purpose for the church has been accomplished because leaders exist to support, help, equip the church. It's a little bit like, you know, young people, you maybe don't agree with this, but your parents are a gift to you. Just take it by faith, okay? Your parents are a gift to you to equip you to be 
responsible and, and to prepare you for life. And God gives leaders to the church um, so that they can be doing the encouraging and the serving. That's exactly what it's, it's so exciting to see that happening at Open Door and I'm sure other churches too where there is encouraging and there is so much serving and, and people are equipped and sharing the gospel in places that we would never be able to do from this building. But they're at the workplace being a good friend to somebody and, and sharing Christ with that friend or bringing that friend to church or whatever it might be where they can hear about Christ. And so the body is growing, the body is being built up. So he says, all things are yours. God has privileged his church. He cares about his family, so he gave it these leaders. But after you get, in verse 22, past Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, he uses five terms that are kind of mind-boggling. All things are yours, not just these leaders, but the world is yours, and life or death is yours, and the present or future is yours. He repeats it, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. What is he talking about? Because he's gone from, you know, okay, we can picture the leaders belong to the church, but how, do the, how does the church, like, own the world and life and death and present and future? I really believe the use of the word world here does mean the universe. The whole universe belongs to the church. Why? Because we belong to Christ, Christ belongs to God, and God owns the universe. Do you agree God owns the universe? It's family property then. So, when you think about why did God create the universe, it is so that his family can enjoy it forever. And those who reject the opportunity, the invitation to be part of his family, they're going to miss out on enjoying the extent of the universe. I just saw an article this week, someplace in a Yahoo News uh, feed, about the James Webb Space Telescope. Quote, the telescope keeps finding galaxies that shouldn't exist, a scientist has warned. Six of the earliest, that's their word, six of the earliest and most massive galaxies appear to be bigger and more mature, in other words, older, than they should be given the, where they are in the universe. And the article goes on to say that it's kind of like threatening, questioning this Big Bang idea of the expanding universe because you got the older ones out there. He says, that doesn't make sense. Huh. Maybe they were all created on the fourth day, like Genesis 1 says. And God created them and put them exactly where they should be. So, I mean, we, we have a glimpse. Everybody gets a glimpse of, that the heavens declare the glory of God, but who is going to explore the full extent of the galaxies? Us as believers will enjoy it forever because ultimately God made his world for his family just like you take your family on vacation, not mine. You do it for them. What else belongs to us? Life and death? How does that belong to us? Well, because it's controlled by Christ and we belong to Christ. 
In fact, by the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he'll say, and the, and the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. Christ is in full control so that, yes, there is a truly painful separation in this season between life on earth and life in heaven. But the fear of death need not enslave us. It doesn't have to, have to be this impossibly big fear that we can't conquer because we belong to Christ who controls it. We have eternal life, and it can't be taken from us. Life or death, even present or future, time belongs to God's family. Time is not the enemy of God's kids. I think it was last week we were talking about how you know, the world sees time as a clock that is winding down because the only reference points they have is birth and death. And so it's winding down, winding down, ending in misery and death, whereas for a believer, time is a pathway to this glorious future that he has planned for us. And so we can't understand all that God has planned to do in time, but he's doing it for us. And it'll all make sense someday. So all the suffering, all the the chaos, the wars, the life and death, as well as the blessings of relationships and love and the beauty we can see everywhere around us. It's all forming some kind of a tapestry that will make sense, and he's going to show it off to the church someday. How it all fit together. So, you know, when you complete a project of any kind that you did well, you really want to show it to somebody. You want somebody to say, that's a really amazing thing. And I think God's greatest glory, God's greatest joy will be when his family gets to see how it all fit together. And none except those who fall at the foot of the cross will ever be able to fully glorify God for how he made it all work. And so in heaven someday we can kind of picture that God will show us how he turned every tragedy into a triumph. And that somehow he can say, Sid and Priscilla and everyone who suffered loss, open door, I want to show you how all those hard things in time all fit perfectly. There's really quite a crescendo, if you will, at the end of chapter 3. It's almost like if Greek had punctuation, you'd put a couple of exclamation points at the end. And I wonder if, like, as Paul wrote this, he kind of, like, took a deep breath took a break, went and got a drink or something. Because he has just like opened the curtain of heaven a little bit to say, do you realize everything belongs to you? That Christ has privileged you because you're part of the church. But now he has to bring us back to earth to answer the question, so what do we do here on earth, right? He's writing this on parchment, for people in a real church living their life at some point, middle age, whatever. What are we supposed to be doing? And so he uses himself as an example and say, so, if Jesus is that committed to his church, he's going to give everything and bless the church. We should be so committed to the church as well, and God will reward that. So then, chapter 4, verse 1. Men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those 
entrusted with the secret things of God, or you may have stewards of the mysteries of God. Who are we? We are servants entrusted. Servants and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now it is required, verse 2, that those who have been given a trust, those who are stewards, must prove faithful. So Paul says there is an accountability where God will evaluate um, whether we have taken care of the business he gave us individually to do. And this uh, harkens back to what we looked at last week. Paul says in verse 1, I'm no hero, I'm no flag bearer of the Paul party. I'm a servant of Christ. Remember the bottom-up view? And what's the role of a servant? To be a steward. So Jesus is the master of the household. I mean, it's kind of picture uh, large households in, in first century. There was a master owner who would then have servants who actually manage the household, much a little bit more like businesses around today. You can owner and you can have a manager. And Paul says, what I am is really just a, a servant who manages something. He says, specifically, I am a steward of the mysteries of God. Now, what was that mystery? It sounds kind of like da-da-da or something, like something weird, but it's not. The mystery of, that Paul was entrusted with is something very specific. He described it in chapter 3 of Ephesians when he said, I was entrusted with revealing the church because in the Old Testament, they didn't know the church. They didn't know that was God's plan. The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, known as the church, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. So he's just kind of going a little more in depth of what he refers to here in 1 Corinthians. The Old Testament didn't tell us that there was going to be a time where the Jews and Gentiles would be merged into a single uh, body belonging to Christ on equal footing, equal status before God. Because you came to the Jewish people to worship at the temple. But there's a big transition after Christ. So he says, I, I, get, I get to be the one. I, my stewardship was, I, get, I was entrusted to reveal this exciting news of the church. That was Paul's stewardship. Most of you can read. If you were here with us in January, we did a series on biblical financial stewardship. The idea being that uh, all money belongs to God forever. We know that because we only use it here and then we leave it behind. So we are accountable to manage the money God gives us. Well, he's saying the same thing is true of ministry or service. We are accountable for how faithfully we do ministry or service that God assigns us. And then Paul is actually just using his own life as an illustration. So I was accountable for the stewardship of revealing the church, and of course, we'll see in a moment, preaching the gospel. But if you can go back to chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, he has on his mind, he's just been writing about this time when our lives will be like going through a fire to see what God could reward Verse 13, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light and it'll be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss, meaning loss of reward because this is not about sin. We're never going to be judged about sin again as believers. 
This is about what can God reward. And Paul's saying, i got to practice what I preach, which is that I am accountable to be, keyword verse 2, faithful. It's required of stewards that they be faithful. That's what God is looking for, faithfulness. So Paul says, I'm supposed to reveal the church, and I'm supposed to preach the gospel. That was also Paul's responsibility. Later on in our study of 1 Corinthians, we'll come across this. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust or stewardship committed to me. So he says, whether you get a reward or not, I just got to do it. There was a sense of duty, responsibility, and yet knowing that God rewarded. We can see Paul sometimes like as this bigger-than-life figure of the New Testament. But Paul didn't see himself as a hero. He just saw himself as a guy with a job to do for which he'd be accountable, even though, indeed, he had a very special place, an apostle, and revealing the church, writing 13 letters and all these things. Yeah, it's very special. But he's just being evaluated someday, he says, for doing my job. You and I are going to be evaluated for just doing whatever it is that God has equipped us to do. It's what compels me daily, weekly, to do what I do. I've been able to raise my family by being a pastor, and I love being a pastor most of the time. I remember briefly in Bible college days, I, was, I had a job working at a full-service gas station. Some of you don't know what that is, but they used to have full-service gas stations where you know, you'd walk up to the car and you'd say, what can I do? What kind of gas do you want? You fill the gas, and you take the payment, you wash their windshield, check the oil if they want. Anyhow, I just did it. I didn't work out time-wise to do that job very long, but one time the owner said, so you're going to, you're going to this, this Bible school. What, what, are you, what are you studying for? I said, well, I, I want, I'm studying to be a pastor. It's kind of like, he didn't know what to say. Finally, he said, well, I hear they make pretty good money. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only criteria he could think of. <laughs> There's only a couple of us that open the door that make a living in the ministry, but it really doesn't make any difference. It's like it doesn't matter. There weren't that many apostles, right? There's no special prize for pastors or missionaries in heaven. It's about whether you are faithful. And so if you are as faithful in an invisible ministry as I am in a more visible ministry, we're just being faithful to the stewardship God has given us. It's not a competition. So what has God enabled you, directed you, moved you, equipped you, resourced you to do, and then are you being faithful to that? It can change from season to season, too. I was visiting this week with someone who's not able to physically attend our services anymore. But he prays faithfully for open door. The prayer chain request that maybe you and I get on the email that just like, yeah, I want to know what's going on. And, Dear Lord, bless Joe. You know, <laughs> he prays. He gathers additional prayer requests, and he is faithful to pray. He says, it's all I can do. And I said the right thing. What did I say? It's the most important thing you can do. Do we believe that? It's the most important thing we do. 
We believe it, but sometimes we are so busy doing ministry instead of praying to the one who enables and empowers ministry. If indeed we are privileged because Christ is so committed to his church, we will be rewarded if we are committed to Christ's church by serving faithfully. And, and a real bonus blessing is that when we are committed to serving Christ and his church and building his church, we don't need to worry about the critics. We don't have to worry if, we are, if we're noticed. We don't have to worry who gets the credit. Verse 3 and 4. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Do you get, get that sense? It's, all that matters is if Christ is pleased with our ministry. It is so easy to be enslaved by what other people think. Amen? Yeah. Every one of us has that virus to some degree. We, we have that disease. Do we recognize when we, we cross that line of brooding over who has criticized me, who has noticed me, who has been given credit? Paul says, just relax. We can ignore what other people think if we serve to please Christ and Christ alone. He said, I do not even judge myself, and that's important. As we studied last week and this week a little bit about rewards and faithfulness, you know, we can turn a little bit like introspective navel gazers, like, am I doing it right? Am I going to be, am I, am I going to get the rewards I, need, I should have? And I, I, I'm probably doing it all wrong. Do I qualify? And I think Paul is saying when he says, don't, I don't judge myself, he says, stop doing that. Don't be a self-judger. So on one hand, we know faithfulness matters. So you get up today and say, God, what do you want me to do? But don't stress over, you know, am I faithful enough? You know, can God reward me today? So I can't, I can't judge myself. That's not my job. That's God's job. On one hand, he says, my conscience is clear. And we all, we all get that. We, we can tell when our attitude stinks about ministry. We can tell if we should be doing something different with our time than we are. We can... We, we, we can tell if we're overcommitted, trying to please people, whatever it might be, and the Holy Spirit can guide us, might even use a friend or a spouse. We, we can, my conscience is clear, he says, but then he says, on the other hand, that doesn't make me innocent. I could be wrong about my self-evaluation. So it's, it's really like, take your hands off of this because it's the Lord who judges me. How freeing is that? So, other Christians can't judge if I'm faithful. I cannot even rely on my own analysis if I'm being faithful. Ultimately, God is. I just want to keep thinking about pleasing Christ. And so that brings him to what we see in verse 5, where Pastor Nate read earlier. It brings us to a, like, like wrapping it up and closing the loop with this whole thing about are we, are, we, are we investing in gold, silver, precious stones, or investing in wood, hay, or straw in our life that we looked at last week? Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. And will expose the, the motives. You may have the word purpose or counsel 
of men's hearts. What's, what's really going on? What's, what's motivating, driving us? At that time, at that time, each will receive his praise or his commendation from God. So wait till Christ comes back. Christ is coming back, by the way. I remember my parents, when I was a little kid, talking about Jesus Christ is coming back. And they were looking at the world in the 60s and saying, he must be coming soon. And they weren't wrong. I just know he's 60 years or so closer than he was then. Christ is coming back. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians, we'll see it again in chapter 15. Jesus Christ will literally bodily catch up his family, his church that he loves, his church that he's prepared the whole universe and all of time for. He's going to catch us up together with those and raise those who have died. And together we're going to be raised and with him. And that's actually when this evaluation day comes. He will bring, that's when he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose our motives. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. That sounds scary right away, right? Because we right away, kind of self-accusing and saying, oh dear, what's he going to find? Because all we can tend to think about is he's going to be looking for sin. And we forget all the sin was left over there. That's not what he's looking for in the darkness. He's looking for that which cannot otherwise be seen because God sees what cannot be seen. And he answers exactly what that is. He says, motives, counsel, purpose. What, what was your motivation? What, what drove you to do what you did for Christ? That's what he rewards. Sincerity, attitude is everything. Motives. Not the accomplishments. I will not arrive in heaven, and God says, well, you know, open door could have been bigger if you'd have done it different. No. It'll be motives. You won't be evaluated how many people came to your thing. Bible study, events. How many people thanked you for your ministry? Told you how great you were. How many people you brought to faith in Christ? I pretty much imagine there'll be in the case of missionaries who served their whole life and have a handful of believers who came to faith. And, and then there's going to be the evangelists who they're just able to be at that right place at the right time. And hundreds, thousands or hundred thousands have come to faith and, and they'll be side by side. Side by side because he will bring to light what's hidden in darkness and expose the sincerity of their motives. And that's when each one receives his praise or commendation from God. It's a praise word. It's, we are called to praise him here. Every, I mean, the Psalms. We, we know our purpose is to praise God, and that's one of the main reasons we get together every week is to praise God. That's why we sing. That's why you actually sing out loud, to praise him. And in heaven, what will we be doing? We will be praising him perfectly, wonderfully forever. But there's going to be this special moment when he's going to praise us. It doesn't get bigger. It doesn't get more important than that, that he actually will notice and personally commend us. He will receive his praise from God. 
In Matthew 25, Jesus told that story about the man, the parable, a man who left on a journey. He's obviously uh, an owner, like an owner of a household, right? He leaves on a journey, and he leaves some money for each of three servants. Five talents of gold for one, we'll call them bags. So five bags of gold for one, and two bags of gold for another, and one bag of gold for the other. So we, in our mind, we know the picture now is that Jesus is the owner, he's the master, and we're his servants. Jesus was telling this before he left and went to heaven, and he's going to come back, right? So he, he left us with something valuable. It's our, it's our spiritual gifts, it's our time, it's our opportunities, it's our, it's our resources. And the master told the servants, now I've given you this money, different amounts, different people have different amounts, and I want you to invest it for me, because I'm going to come back and see what you've done with what I, what I gave you to invest. And the, the guy with five talents was able to return five more, ten total. The guy with two was able to return two more, four total. And what happened to that guy who had got one? He says, you know what I actually did? I went, dug a hole, and I buried it. Here it is. In other words, it, it accomplished nothing. I mean, none of the servants owned any of it any of the time, but it was a matter of investing it for the purpose of the owner. I'd like to focus on what Jesus in the parable said that the owner said to the servants who were faithful. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, like we are on earth, I will put you in charge of many things, heaven. Come and share your master's happiness. What are rewards? I think that's a natural question we'd have. And there's little glimpses of this and crowns and crowns that we, it's for his glory. Uh, put him at his feet. Each man's praise will come to him from God. But there's so much that I think Jesus is saying in this answer. I was reading this week about somebody who put it into three phrases. One is pleasing God. The praise is that we've been pleasing God, so he says, you pleased me. Secondly is meaningful responsibility. I'll put you in charge of many things. You were faithful with a few things here on earth. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. If we think that heaven is floating on clouds, half anesthetic, you know, state of mind, we're not. Nah. We're never going to be more alive, never going to be more busy doing things to serve Christ perfectly in an environment with no sin. Won't that be amazing? So I'll put you in charge of many things. And then personal fellowship. Come and share your master's happiness. Pastor Greg Lafferty said, your reward will one day follow naturally from what you are doing now. Rewards flow logically from the actions that garner them. We're going to be, it seems, eternally rewarded with being able to do more and do perfectly that which we are already doing. Think about it. If you long to please God now, to have his approval now, can you imagine what it'll be like 
to hear him say, you pleased me. You pleased me. Hear it in person. And secondly, if you, if you enjoy responsibility now, serving Christ, you enjoy responsibility, doing the work that you know he has equipped you to do, he values and he uses. If you enjoy serving now, if wow, then whatever God gives you in heaven, it's going to be a perfect privilege of serving where there are there's just no, no limits, no sin, no problems. And number three, do you enjoy and strive, or at least strive to enjoy the fellowship of God? Because if you enjoy the fellowship of God, can you imagine what it's like to actually be with him? And he says, here, come sit closer. Come share your, your master's joy, your master's happiness. It seems that the rewards of Christ in heaven are to experience more and to experience perfectly that which we already taste just a little bit in our service for him here on earth. Christ is so committed to his church. He has privileged us forever. And he will reward those who are likewise committed to his church because nothing endears us to Christ more than when we love the ones he loves. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we, we run out of ability to grasp what heaven must be like. We know it's amazing. We know it's a gift. We know if we place our faith in you, that you died for our sins and rose again, that you will give it to us freely. But to imagine what it'll be like to, to, to be there with you, with one another, we, we, we have a hard time grasping, but you've told us just enough. You've opened the curtain just a little bit so that we know it'll be so worth it to hear you say, well done. Here's some, here's some responsibility for you forever, and, and I'm going to enjoy spending time with you, he tells us. And we know we'll enjoy spending time with you, our Savior. So help us, Lord, to live now for that which will matter forever. In Jesus' name, amen.